What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where each episode I interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight-up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. I'm your host, Brian Moore, and today I'm interviewing Craig DeMarco, one of the founding partners of Upward Projects, which is better known for its family of restaurants, including Postino Wine Cafe, Joyride Taco House, Windsor, Churn, and Federal Pizza. In this spirited discussion, Craig shares stories related to lessons learned watching his entrepreneurial father, the power of venturing off the beaten path, especially when visiting new places, the underrated quality of having a beginner's mindset, the challenges of growing a neighborhood-focused business, and the creativity that comes from hard times, the amazing power of true hospitality, and why having a purpose beyond profit ends up leading to more profit. Oh, and a few other odds and ends that involve a Volkswagen Rabbit, an Alpine stereo, skateboarding, and a Playboy wall installation. If you live in the Phoenix area, you're going to love this episode. If you don't live in the Phoenix area, you'll want to listen in so you know some great places to eat the next time you visit the Valley of the Sun. And if you have no plans to be in Phoenix anytime soon, well, this episode is a great example of an inspired leader who wakes up every day with one purpose in mind, to raise vibrations. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig DeMarco. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me today is Craig DeMarco, and I can't wait to get into this conversation. This one has been uh, months in the making. Craig, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast show. Oh, thanks so much. So stoked to be on. Yeah, excited to have you. Excited to have you. So I want to start and I want to give our listeners just a little bit of uh, what I guess we can call a Craig DeMarco history lesson. And uh, I want you to fill in some blanks here and make sure I've got uh, I've got all my facts correct. You grew up in Connecticut. You moved to the Bay Area roughly around age of six, and then you and your entire family moved to the Valley of the Sun, the Phoenix area, when you were twelve. I'd love to know just a little bit uh, about what brought you and your family from the Bay Area out to the Valley. Yeah, you're spot on on uh, the ages. Uh, born in Connecticut, my dad moved us out to the Bay Area when I was six years old. He uh, early adopter in the software development business. He developed the first Windows-based hotel reservation system for the hospitality industry and um, never really got a chance to totally monetize it because he was an early adopter, but he laid some of that foundation. And he was um, working out of Silicon Valley in late 70s, early 80s. But even back then, it was cheaper for him to operate and run his company out of Arizona. So he moved us down here when I was 12 to Tempe, and he had his office on Mill Avenue. And I went to high school and uh, middle school and high school in Tempe and stayed here with ASU. Well, very nice. What an interesting... you know, point of note, I think, is that, you know, it seems to be a growing trend that many Silicon Valley companies, if not relocating here, are certainly expanding operations just due to the wonderful conditions, both business-wise and uh, extracurricular-wise that the Valley offers. But your dad did that back, I guess, well before it was trendy in, uh, in making the move to the Valley. Well, even back then, cost of living... And he could he could telecommute, and he spent some time on the road going back and forth. But it was actually more efficient for him and more cost effective to run his business out of uh, Tempe. 
So I'm curious, as you think back to what it was like growing up in what sounds like it was a very entrepreneurial household, uh, I'd love for you to share, you know, what lesson or lessons uh, that you learned along the way, whether it came from your dad or for, uh, from other influences that you had that have proved to be some of the most valuable for you. I was very fortunate to grow up with an entrepreneurial father. Um, even though I didn't realize well until after high school that there was plenty of times that they were paycheck to paycheck and struggling. We never really felt it as a family. My dad was always there to make sure we had the basic necessities and there was a house full of love. But we, we lived in a track home in Tempe and were uh, shopping at Mervyn's and JCPenney Outlet, but never felt, never felt like we didn't have for what we needed. Um, on the other side, my dad always made us earn everything we wanted or needed. So I'll give you a great story. Starting in junior high, um, before back to school, we would sit down around the family room table and create a budget for back to school shopping. And my parents would make a list of all the items that were needed, uh, a column of how much they were willing to contribute towards those items. And then another column um, with jobs we could do to earn more money if we wanted to upgrade. For example, when I was in junior high, uh, white Nike high tops were very fucking cool and I really wanted them, but my parents would only contribute about 50% to buying those shoes. So I had to work at jobs or chores to earn the rest of the money to get them. And when I finally did got, when I finally did get them, I appreciated them so much and I took care of them and cleaned them and put them in a special place each night. So I really learned the lesson of value early on. And my parents were always there as a safety net. I knew they were there for me, but they always made me go out and kind of try to find the resources or be resourceful to figure out how to get something done like that. I mean, what a great lesson to learn early on. And, and dare I add, because I think we probably grew up in a similar time frame that uh, if you're going to be skating around on a nice rainbow vision gator, you got to have a nice pair of white Nike high tops, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so we did, we must've grown up in the same time. Yeah. I, was a, I was a pretty big skateboarder too. Yeah. I think, uh, I think no matter what, uh, what part of the world, at least in the U S you grew up in, if you grew up in the seventies, eighties, uh, mid eighties, uh, having skateboards was definitely, uh, something you had to do. That's for sure. Um, I'm, I'm curious also, you know, given the gift of hindsight, as you look back and reflect on, you know, your dad and his entrepreneurial spirit, was there ever any emphasis around um, the importance that he stressed of working for yourself versus working for someone else? Or is this something you just naturally fell into? You know, it was really a life lesson. My dad was drilling into me from an early start. He, um, again, had many um, entrepreneurial adventures and was up and was down, but he always said, you always want to control your destiny and, and work, working for yourself was very important and a core value in our company. So I am sorry, in our, in our family. So I always knew someday I wanted to start my own company. Um, I, I stumbled into the restaurant because when I was 15 years old, I uh, had a, my first serious heavy crush on this gal named Jamie O'Dell and um, wanted to take her out and realize that if I needed, if I wanted to ask her on a date, I needed a car. Unfortunately, my parents didn't have those kind of resources. And even if they did, I don't know that they would have bought me one. So I rode my BMX bike down to a, uh, a restaurant, got a job washing dishes, saved up $1,200, spent 400 of it on a Volkswagen rabbit 
and then put an $800 Alpine stereo in it, which was, uh, seemed, seemed appropriate at that age to have your stereo be worth tw- more than twice the amount of your car. And I'm sorry, I'm off on a tangent here, but I did end up taking her out on a date on my 16th birthday in my rabbit with my Alpine stereo to see Modern English, the one-hit wonder band that sang I Melt For You. I could say that I uh, was successful in closing that deal with that first crush, but it was a, it was a one date one. It was a one and done, even with my uh, Alpine stereo. That's awesome. That's all. I love the tangent actually. So since you, since since we're on this tangent, I know you're a huge huge fan of local business, and in particular, since we're on the topic of music of Stinkweeds, do you remember? I'm just curious what your very first album ever purchased or cassette was. That is an e- the easiest question you'll ask me all afternoon. It was a band out of Tucson called the Sidewinders, and it was called Aunt Ramos's Pool Hall. And that was when Stinkweeds was in Mesa. And I even remember skating over there. Uh, let me see, what was I skating at that point? I think I had a Kevin Staub. He was a local skater here. And I had a Kevin Staub board, and I skated over there and bought that album. And um, I still, if I, I take it back, I bought the cassette. And I still have the cassette. That's awesome. That's awesome. Good times. Good times. So we could probably stay on this music uh, tangent for quite a while, but uh, I want to get to some of the other meatier parts of uh, what, I, what I hope will be uh, as interesting, if not more. So fast forwarding a little bit, uh, you got married at, at what I think society would say is a bit of a relatively early age. And during the first you know handful of years of your marriage, you and your wife, Chris, you guys did a lot of traveling. And from what I found out, you guys really prioritize visiting, especially what, you know, whether you were in the country or out of the country, that you guys really prioritize visiting more of what I guess would be called the non-touristy or more local type spots when visiting major destinations. I'm curious, was that by design? Was there a specific experience that had led you guys to follow this off the beaten path type philosophy? So I got to give credit where credit's due. My wife was the one that injected me with the travel bug and the wanderlust and the intellectual curiosity and discovery. She's always uh, been like that. And when we, when we were together and we would travel, she was always doing research, even way pre-internet, researching through Zagat guides or whatever she'd get her hands on to find out the coolest, newest, trendiest places to go and see. Um, and we, we love getting off the beaten path and having those discovery moments. You know, my favorite story is how Postino came into existence. For my 30th birthday, my wife and I decided we were going to go to Italy with my mom and dad to celebrate. And we had already been there and we'd done most of the major cities, most of the major tourist attractions. And we decided we wanted to go see how the locals live and kind of get lost on a crazy adventure. And Chris Bianco from Pizzeria Bianco fame suggested to us, you know, why don't you check out Luca? city north of Florence. We, uh, we found a farmhouse. We rented it. I, we flew over. I rented an Alfa Romeo. What I pictured to be a red convertible turned out to look more like a Nissan Sentra. But we drove around the, the north of Italy for a week or so, getting lost in little towns and just kind of, you know, meandering around. And that's what led to the spark to do Postino. We came back and said, wow, it is an amazing experience in these little towns where people had this local hangout where wine was accessible and not snobby and affordable. 
we came back to Arizona looking for that and it didn't exist. So we, we created it. That's awesome. Now, is this, so when you guys came back from Italy and, you know, this, you know, had this fire to go do this, to create this type of an experience here uh, in the Valley, is this when I think you guys were met with, at least at the time, if not still, was the largest neighborhood opposition to a restaurant use permit that Phoenix had ever seen? Is this the corollary to that? Is this when that uh, all went down? That is exactly the same time period and same project. And we came back all excited and <coughs> pardon me, found the original location for Pocino or uh, went after it as fast and curious as we could without having all the facts. The city of Phoenix posted a big sign in front of the property for a public hearing. And at that point we did have the largest opposition, neighborhood opposition to a restaurant use permit in the history of the city of Phoenix. And good news is we, we dug in and fought with everything we had and we prevailed. And I look back now and I was actually talking to my wife about this earlier. As tough as those times were, they were the most exciting and overcoming adversity and, and then being resourceful and figuring out how to get something done. And we had zero to zero experience working with a municipality or we're doing neighborhood outreach had no experience with zoning laws, but we, uh, we hustled and we, we asked good questions. We showed humility. We, we got the right people on our team and we went around and did the neighborhood outreach and happy to say we got through it. And I don't know what that intersection would look like today if we uh, would have given it up. I don't think that would have been there. LeGrand Orange wouldn't be there. So I'm, I'm very proud that we, we fought the good fight. You know, it's interesting. I want to stay on this just for a minute and thinking about just this passion, this fire that you guys had to want to create something special in this little section of, of, uh, of the Arcadia area in Phoenix and to be met with such what I can only assume was really strong neighborhood opposition for them to have gathered in the, the, the numbers that they did. Did it catch you off guard? Like how could people not see what you saw and not want to be a part of making this uh, drastic change to this little section of town? I didn't understand while it was happening, but again, I never had a chance to meet these people. Um, there were petitions signed letters sent to the city, very uh, rough letters, you know, criticizing us. As I look back now, you know, we were putting a wine bar into a neighborhood and those last three letters of the word wine bar got a lot of people scared. Sure. I was 29 or I'm sorry, I was 30 years old at the time and had a liquor license and I'm going into a location that's surrounded on all four sides by residential. You said it earlier, hindsight's 2020. I, if I could go back in time, I would have handled my neighborhood outreach completely differently. I would have explained, I would have presented our, our vision differently. I, I just didn't know any better at that time. I didn't have that kind of experience. So I look back now and I, I'm very forgiving and I don't blame them for having that first reaction. I'm disappointed that no one took the time to really you know, do research and figure out what we were attempting to do to become an asset to the neighborhood. But um, again, I wouldn't change a thing. I've, I've learned so much from that. In fact, after I went through it and prevailed, I swore to myself I would never let that happen again. So I called up Councilman Stanton, who's our current mayor, who's our council person at that time, and I asked him if I could get a seat on the Camelback East Village Planning Committee, which is the committee that hears all the zoning cases in that area before they go to the city. 
so I can learn the process and the procedure so that I, I would never have that, I would never make that mistake again. So I educated myself and we've done, you know, 17 projects since then, all similar in nature. And I'm, I have a little bit of an expertise on how to get them done now, but I wouldn't have been forced to learn that skill set hadn't I gone through the adversity. Yeah, what a great, uh, what a great lesson. Thanks for sharing that story. I'm curious, you know, as you also think that some of the people that uh, were the strongest opposition, uh, is it safe to assume that some of those same folks are probably now some of your best guests and clientele that are popping into, into Postino? You know, I think we've converted most of them to guests. And it took some time. And as I look back now, we had to earn our stripes. So we operated responsibly and we did things to be good, a good neighbor. And we earned it over time. And one of the biggest thrills now is to see MLS listings and residential real estate listings for the neighborhood, you know, listing us as an asset. So awesome. I think we've, uh, we've done a good job. It's almost been, you know, it was April 4th, 2001 when we opened. So it's been quite a number of years. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really awesome. You know, I want to transition for a moment um, and something that uh, really just uh, hit home with me. And I think you know the obvious is because of the the space that I'm in and and how I spend my days uh, when I'm not with my family, and that is talking about you you know what I've perceived to be your personal purpose and why you get out of bed every day, and that's to create spaces and experiences where people can connect. And this connection theme, for me at least, in, in everything I've had the opportunity to learn about you so far. This connection theme and giving people a place where they can um, just experience something that's a little bit out of the ordinary, a little bit more humanness than perhaps our day-to-day lives being sucked into technology. Uh, Along lead into the question, I'm, I'm curious, when did you arrive at knowing that this was really your true north and why, you know, you want to be doing what you're doing? Well, that's the, that's the big secret, right? When Chris and I opened Pocino Arcadia and tried to create that space, it was a wine bar. Neither of us knew very much about wine. Um, and we just wanted to create a space where our friends would come hang out, our family would come hang out. We could meet neighbors. We could be part of a community, part of a neighborhood. And it's been the theme since. And I, I, I lied if I said I had a big strategic vision with a business plan and all the financials worked out we didn't we just wanted to create a hang and i look back at the original line list and you know we've obviously upgraded and hired great people who are smarter than us to do those those functions but we created a space the neighbors could walk to bike to stroll uh, push their strollers down to we made it casual there wasn't any technology for the longest time we didn't have, even have a television set in there we wanted people to connect on a deeper level Again, sparked by that trip to Italy with my parents, and we went to all these little small Italian towns. In the afternoon, the neighbors were sitting around talking, connecting, learning about each other, being vulnerable, consuming alcohol (laughs) responsibly. It was part of their culture, and that was really the goal of the whole thing. I I wrote a very, very uh, bar napkin pro forma in the beginning to show my wife, if we could make $80,000 a year, we're going to rule. We're going to be the kings and queens of our universe that was that was my big audacious goal was to open up that wine bar so her and i could make eighty thousand dollars a year and we'd never have to answer anyone and we could see all of our friends and our family all the time 
So that was that was the spark that lit the whole thing. <laughs> so and I think still try to channel that that spirit to this day. Yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that uh, while making money is clearly an important part of the business, it sounds like your goal in doing this thing from the get-go wasn't to make money. That's just been the natural byproduct of doing something that is far more motivating for you. You know, it was the creation of something special. I needed to make a certain amount of income so I could support my wife and then start a family. And at that point in time, in 2001, I thought $80,000 would be enough to pay my mortgage and pay our, our car insurance and, and, and hopefully, you know, have, have children. It's so funny. It wasn't, it wasn't for a liquidity event. It wasn't to make a bunch of money. It was really, uh, there was way more creativity involved. Now, I'm a firm believer if you do something in the right spirit, you know, the money will follow and the making the money is the result of what we did and what we created. But it was never the, it's never, it was never in the forefront of why we did it. Yep. Yep. You know, it's interesting. You talked about when you got into it that you didn't have some master plan. You didn't have the financials worked out. The pro forma was on the back of a napkin. So I want to use that as a bit of a segue. You know, the failure rate among entrepreneurial ventures is pretty high, and it seems to be even higher in the restaurant industry. And location, particularly bad locations, uh, is often the single greatest contributor to why a, a restaurant will fail. You and your team have really prioritized. I think what you call historically relevant buildings is an integral part of your strategy. And I'm curious, you know, where historically relevant buildings are may not always align to the best location, location, location philosophy. Why has this been such a driving force for you guys? Well, one, we care about good design and we appreciated those older historically and architecturally relevant buildings. Um, fortunately, a lot of those were situated around great demographics and neighborhoods. If you look at the, our, our trajectory, we went from 40th Street in Campbell, and which is arguably Arcadia built more Paradise Valley demographic, even though it was a kind of in a neighborhood that had fallen on some hard times and wasn't, there wasn't a ton of civic pride. It came back strong. We then moved down to Central and Camelback, where four historic neighborhoods come together. Um, it's the only intersection in town where that happens. And again, uh, great families, great schools, found old cool buildings, gave them a second chance. Uh, we love the sustainability part of that, too, that we don't just, you know, build, build from scratch, try to use what's existing. And there's also something thrilling about finding a space and having restrictions and figuring out how to be creative and use it effectively. Um, we, uh, we're, we're designing a house right now, my wife and I, and we're going from a piece of dirt and it, it, it's foreign to us. We've never done anything from the ground up. We've always had to work with some restrictions and I, I, I kind of like that and making the old kind of come back to life and reach its glory again. And there's always a great story too. You know, there's plenty of our buildings that have had, had a pat, had a really uh, interesting past. We have a location in Denver, Colorado. It's a 1956 building. Its whole life, it was the Denver bookbinding company. When we when we went in there to do the start work on the Postino, there was binder glue all over the floor. I can't imagine how many books were actually binded in there. Old old school style. That's awesome. So we we love history. That's really cool. That's really cool. Well, let's let's stay on the uh, on the history piece for a minute. Um, in the north central part of Phoenix, and this is probably the area that you're talking about where the four historic neighborhoods come together, 
I think you and your team did something that I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that many Phoenicians really don't know about, or at least don't know how big of an impact that you guys had that, uh, for those folks uh, who don't live in the Phoenix area, this, uh, I'll do my best to describe uh, Central Avenue is essentially the street that cuts uh, the Phoenix Valley in half that runs north to south. And Camelback is uh, often considered uh, sort of the the other center line, if you will, that cuts the valley from uh, or from north to south and Central cuts it from east to west. So Camelback runs east west, uh, Central runs north south. So just north of Camelback along Central, but south of like Bethany, Bethany Home Road, Central is a six lane surface street. So really busy, lots of traffic. And part of your vision, as I understand it, was to really create a neighborhood out of that area. And part of that plan involved reducing Central's traffic flow from a six-lane surface street to a four-lane so that bike paths could be put in and people could uh, have more room to, you know, ride bikes, walk stroller or push strollers, walk dogs, that kind of a thing. I mean, that's that's a pretty big undertaking. And, you know, spoiler alert, you guys were successful in doing that. Where did all of that come from? Well, I wish I could say, again, it was part of a macro vision that we saw clearly at the, at the beginning. Uh, my wife, Chris, and I partnered up with another amazing couple named Lauren and Wyatt, ba- Wyatt Bailey in 2008 when we did the uh, second Postino over on Central. And Lauren and I uh, were over there sitting in a convenience store parking lot across the street what, from where what is now uh, Central. And I believe while we were sitting in the parking lot, the, the convenience store got held up. The neighborhood had really gone downhill. There was transients, and we'd find needles in the alley. It was, it was a little sketchy. And we looked over at the building, which had a great history, and decided to go for it. And got open, had a lot of success, saw the neighborhood start to transition. At this time, we were you know, working with the city of Phoenix, um, Mayor Phil Gordon, and then Mayor Stanton. And we assembled some real estate over there. We have actually five restaurants, four restaurants and an ice cream shop and on two sides of Central Avenue. So we had six lanes of traffic and people were playing Frogger back and forth and a lot of families with their kids going from pizza to ice cream. So we were working with the city and pled our case and they reduced Central Avenue from six lanes to four lanes and put bike paths in. And then at one of the intersections closest to our restaurants, they put in a pedestrian meters crosswalk to actually stop traffic for, for our guests to get back and forth. So we wanted to create a safe environment but at the same time, you have this great old neighborhood and getting uh, some new life breathed into it and had tons of support. And now it's very pedestrian. You can come to any of the restaurants on a weekend and there's tons of bikes, tons of strollers, dogs tied up to the, to the trees. And that's kind of how we wanted to live our life. So, again, I, I wish I could say, oh, yeah, we had this big master plan. We saw it clearly from the start, but it was an incremental process. And I can't, I can't say enough about the, the city of Phoenix for realizing that this is something that, that really helped revitalize the neighborhood. Now, it is a for-profit business, but, you know, it does generate tax revenue. We, we, we generate employment. We have over 600, 600 team members. So I think they, they looked at it through that lens like we did and said, hey, this is a good investment on infrastructure. And, again, home values increased. Um, civic pride increased. So again, we have a higher purpose. It's got to make you feel great. Got to make you feel great. 
I'm, uh, I'm, I'm curious. I know that, uh, you know, given this, this emphasis around historical relevance in neighborhoods, was it hard for you to open up a location in like a location like a Kirlin Commons because it doesn't sound like it fit exactly within the strategy that had existed prior to its opening? Was that a tough decision for you guys to make? Yeah, we drank a lot of wine talking about that <laughs> over, 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 a, over a long period of time. So again, for, for anyone who's listening that visited our restaurants, we really care about architectural and historical relevance. Part of our site selection criteria is we want to be surrounded by residential. We want to be part of the community. We want to be able to give back. And Kierlin is a lifestyle center up in North Scottsdale. <laughs> now, we drove and drove and drove and drove all around that area trying to find an old building something we could repurpose, something we could make cool. When we couldn't do that, we started looking for raw land. Let's design something. We'll, we'll find some land. We'll design a cool building. Still couldn't find that. Um, so we decided to start looking at a lifestyle center. There's two centers adjacent uh, across the top that work from each other, the Kierlin Commons and Scottsdale Quarter. And we found a spot in Kierlin that used to be an old lingerie store. So it did have some sexy history. Um, and we went in there and, and tried to make it feel like uh, one of our projects, a little bit of a departure from being in the mall. It was a painstaking process. My partner, Lauren, um, and my wife, Chris, did amazing design to make it feel like it wasn't in a mall setting. And I'm, I'm proud to say that store is performing at a high level. We also had a huge population driving all the way down to visit us since we didn't have a store up there. So it was a logical thing to do. But... We did, we did some things that tried to make it feel a little more rebellious, a little more unique than a mall setting. For example, our, our partner Lauren decided, since it was an old lingerie shop, she was going to collect 1960s and 70s Playboys and do a Playboy collage wall, which my 11-year-old son loves. <laughs> if you look really hard and you squint, you might be able to catch a boob. So... And we told the team, we told the team, if we don't get, if, if we don't get at least a letter a month of them trying to kick us out of the mall, we're not trying hard enough. That's awesome. And I'm guessing uh, family night every Wednesday, bring your small kids. Yeah, no, it's, it's actually very, the, the Playboy wall is, is very well done and appropriate. If, if you do spend any serious time, you can, you can find a couple of nipple shots. But other than that, it's uh it's it's a fun art installation. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. I want to let's uh let's transition. I want to talk about the concept of hospitality. And I want to focus on none other than Danny Meyer, whose famous book Setting the Table, I think really at least in, in the time that I spent in the hospitality space, which is short-lived, it didn't take long to recognize that Danny and the book Setting the Table and everything he's accomplished with Union Square Hospitality just arguably one of the best run companies, let alone restaurant uh, organizations on the planet. And in the book, uh, again, setting the table, he talks about the power of hospitality. And, and I just, I want to spend a moment or two in particular, he references and the way he defines hospitality he says hospitality exists when something happens for you and it is absent when something happens to you. I'd love to get your take on this philosophy of hospitality that Danny describes it. This is my favorite question you've asked me so far. And I ate, I ate in Union Square Cafe in Manhattan last Tuesday with my wife, my parents, and my kids. And Danny was in the restaurant. And I've been a fan since day one. Uh, fortunate enough to meet him 
at Aspen Food and Wine, and I've been a, a, a raving fan for a long time. So, <clears throat> pardon me, sorry. Okay, here's my take on hospitality as it relates to your question. And this is what I tell a lot of the new leadership, and it's very simple. Take a, take a, uh, a circle and cut into three equal pieces, three pieces of this pie, and there's three categories. You've got quality products, you've got technically sound service, and you've got connection to the guest. Start with the quality products. Essentially, I'm manufacturing. We take raw materials in the back door, we add some value to them, we plate them, we resell them for a profit. We have total control over all the raw materials we're using. We don't compromise on quality. Our team members know we don't compromise on quality, so they have a high level of pride in what they're serving, and they care about it. Second piece to this puzzle, technically sound service. Our training keeps getting better and better. This is us giving you the skill set to do the job effectively. It's kind of hit the ball and run the first base. Take the order correctly, enter it in the computer correctly, deliver it correctly, manicure the table, make sure the guest doesn't feel like they're in a business transaction, that we have smooth, smooth um, service. The third piece, the connection to the guest, is what I think is most related to what Danny's talking about. And that is, it's our obligation, responsibility, and pleasure to raise someone's vibration. And I tell the team all the time, when someone comes to visit us, we're going to get them for 50 to 70 minutes at lunch, maybe 75 to 100 minutes at dinner time. And they're coming in and life's tough. They had a flat tire. Their kid got bad grades. They've got to get a root canal. Who knows? Life's just an up and down and it's tough. And it's our job to take them from where they're at and when they leave, be in a better place. We need to raise their vibration in a positive way. And that takes creating those moments and being special and recognizing them, slowing down, making them feel important, finding ways to interject them with positive energy. And the staff always says to me, well, if we just keep giving away our positive energy to all the guests, aren't we going to be depleted? And I said, no, that's really what's the most fun thing about this. The universe rewards you with more positive energy when you give it out, almost like on a 10x level. <clears throat> so when someone visits us, yes, we're going to provide you with great quality products. Yes, we're going to give you smooth service. But more than that, we're going to make a deep connection. And if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, why we did this in the first place, it was to make, create those experiences and those opportunities to have those deeper connections. We're going to treat you really special. We're going to look for opportunities to raise your vibration on every level. For example, if you're dining with us and you have young kids, we're going to tune into that. We're going to realize and empathize with you and figure out how to make it better for you and how to make it better for your kids. If we're on a wait and there's a mother and father, a new mother and father in line with a young baby, we're going to get you bumped up the list. And we're going to try to find every opportunity to do that for you. I'll give you one more example. I dined at Windsor, one of our restaurants, when my, when my second son was, was very young. And we had a new server. And I sat down. And this server I hadn't met yet. So he didn't know that I was one of the partners in the restaurant. And I'm always trying to teach independence to my kids. And my wife and I, our, our newborn and my other son, who was five at the time, he ordered, he ordered uh, something from the menu. That we didn't have. And I knew we didn't have it, but I didn't say anything. The server took the order and left. A few minutes later, she comes out and delivers him what he ordered, and we didn't have it in the restaurant. She took it upon herself to leave, run over to the convenience store, get what he wanted, and bring it back without anyone knowing. That's, that's, the kind that's of, unbelievable. That's, that's what we try to accomplish every day. 
And it takes a long-term vision to do that. It can't be a short-term vision. We're, we've been at this 16 years. We're going to be at this another 20 years. That's an, that's an amazing example. That's a really great example. So, so back to Danny Meyer, he does it probably better than anyone else. He creates those experiences. He, he's got the most quality products, gracious, seamless service. But man, do they connect on a deep level? Do they make you feel better for being in that space? When you leave in a better place than when you showed up. So I want to stay on this raise your vibration piece. And I also want to stay on the Danny Meyer piece simultaneously. So let me draw from the book uh, another concept that he is just animate, uh, just super passionate about. And that is that the first and most important application of hospitality is to the people who work for you. And then in descending order of priority, the guests, the community, the supplier, and lastly, the investors. His prioritization for me raises a few questions, and in particular around your concept of raising people's vibration. In order to do that, and I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you agree wholeheartedly with Danny's prioritization that there's no way for your teammates to take care of the guests if your teammates aren't being well taken care of. So how do, how do you first ensure in an industry that is, you know, it's, it's known for having high turnover because in many cases, not because the industry is bad, but it's often a stepping stone to something else. It's part-time work while something else is happening. How do you find people that are living at a authentic level uh, that that's aligned to them being driven by raising someone's vibration? Wow, that's the, most, that's the most powerful word, authenticity, right? I mean, that's what we really are screening for when we're, we're trying to hire people. People that really believe in being service to others, who have a high level of humility, who are authentic and genuine. Um, we can train for skill. You know, everyone says they're a people first company. Everyone says that now, like everyone says they have great company culture, but few, few people live it on a daily basis. Empathy, compassion. Um, we, we kind of rank it, our, our team, our vendors, our guests, and then the investors. If we're taking care of our team and our vendors, all that's trickling down to the guests. If our team's taken care of, they can take care of our guests. So I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. We spend a, an, an insane amount of time making sure that culture is intact. And as we've grown, that's been the biggest fear, right? Oh, it's going to get diluted. It's going to become corporate. I mean, it's so ingrained in our core values. It's what we spend a lot of time on. And I talk about that connection to the guests with the employees at the, at the meetings. Um, my, our, our partners, the Baileys, our core values are completely aligned. So there, there's, there's no force in our company that's pulling it in a different direction. In fact, as we've gotten bigger, it's gotten stronger. That's incredible. I'm curious what, uh, you know, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it, at least, it certainly is interesting, right? I mean, your partners, you have three of them. One is your wife and the other two is a husband wife team. So the four of you make up this incredible force, but I'm going to go on even with values and in being incredibly well aligned. It's a, it's an interesting, uh, to say the least, an interesting group of partners to have two husband wife teams. What's that like? You know, I mean, it's fabulous when you're with people that you're aligned with, that you believe in, that you trust, that you share core values, that you love and care about. It makes everything else easier. Um, I've been in partnerships in the past that didn't check all those boxes and it made life very difficult. 
Um, so I feel very blessed at this moment. And, 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 and everyone's uniquely talented in their own way. And if you can channel humility and authenticity, it's a beautiful thing. When egos get in the way, or, or that's the potential challenge that I've seen in, in my peers and, and in other business ventures, is it's, it's ego. And we spend a lot of time and a high level of awareness working on that to making sure that's being checked at the door, that we are being authentic, we are being humble. Um, and again, we, I think we are, the universe helped us come together to create something special. So I know I'm sounding a little metaphysical or philosophical with all this raising vibrations and being the universe bringing us together, but I do subscribe to a, an energy source. And if we can tap into the flow, which I think we've had a lot of success doing, amazing things will happen. Well, that only comes around, comes, comes from being with people you trust and you can be open with. Yep. And you, uh, you can be as uh, philosophical or metaphysical uh, as you want. You, uh, you're speaking a very similar language. Uh, and I'm sure you've read it, but in the event you haven't, uh, Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist would be uh, a book right up your alley if you haven't checked it out already. So it's my number, it's my number one book I've ever read. I read it um, every January 1st. I start it. And I've got my uh, 12-year-old sitting on his nightstand right now. So you are, you are spot on. I, I, that, that book has probably, uh, I've given that book out more than any other book. Well, I'll tell you what then, since we're, uh, I'll call us similar book nerds. Uh, I just finished one and started another. The one that I just finished is called When Breath Becomes Air. If you haven't read it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. And the second one that I just started literally this past weekend is the newest book uh, by the, the Holiness, uh, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama and Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu with uh, a, a fellow author, Douglas Abrams, called The Book of Joy. And I, I obviously can't share the summary because I'm not through it yet. I'm only about a quarter of the way through. But what I can share is the, the book is centered on that in the world we live in today, this entire system that's been driven largely by the pursuit of external or materialistic uh, rewards has so taken our collective eye off the ball that everything we need to experience true joy comes from within. And uh, I can't wait to continue to dig in and learn from two amazing spiritual leaders. So that's, that'd be another one. I'm digging it already. And I have a feeling you would too. Oh, thanks for sharing. Yeah, I just wrote them both down. I'll fire on those today. Um, I, I want to just spend a moment on, since you talked about core value, not only from uh, the organization's perspective, but uh, you know, sharing the same core values with your partners. You guys have a really cool and very easy list of core values. Uh, there's five of them. Power to the people, keeping it real, humble beginnings, come one, come all, and inspired spaces. And while I'd love to go through all five of them and get to the, the root of all of them, in general, I'm curious how those were arrived at and what kind of a process you guys used to get to it. And do you check in on them to make sure they're still the right five that are going to guide you to wherever it is you guys are going? Yeah. So those, again, I wish I could say we sat down and we had this genius moment and we, we put them down on paper in one sitting. 
didn't happen like that. They evolved over years, trial and error, mistakes and learning and books and podcasts and mentors and, uh, you know, talking about our core values um, with our partners. They've evolved and they continue to evolve. It's a living, breathing document. And we're always trying to fine tune it and stay ahead of it and be innovative. Um, and how we honor those, we just keep them front, front of mind and, and, and talking about them. You know, our executive team is full of a lot of people that kind of kind of were grown from within. And, and recently we started to hire people from the outside to keep up with our growth. And when we interview or at least recruit or, you know, meet these people, that's what we're looking for. You know, people that will believe in that. And again, back to being humble and in service to others. And you know, I'm going to be 47 here shortly. And I really wish I would have known these or understood these lessons earlier in life. Maybe I did subconsciously, but now I'm really trying to channel them more, more giving and less taking. And those are all in alignment with our, with those core values are aligned with all of our partners, large executive team members. And it trickles down to the store leaders and to the, to the service level positions that are touching the guests. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. I want to uh, I want to kind of tie up our conversation here. I want to be respectful of uh, everything you've got going on. And uh, two last things. One of them's a quote, uh, and I think it's a, a favorite of yours. So I hope I don't butcher. Uh, it's a Billy Joe Armstrong quote, who's the uh, the lead singer of Green Day. And the quote goes: A guy walks up to me and asks me, "What's punk?" So I decide to kick over a garbage can and say, "That's punk." So the guy kicks over a garbage can and says, that's punk. And Billy Joe responds, no, that's trendy. I'm curious if, if a, if this quote is still a favorite of yours and assuming that it is, I, what I interpret from this is a, a first move mentality, sort of uh, challenging the status quo, writing against the grain. Is that, is that what this means to you? Wow. Yeah, that is absolutely my all-time favorite quote. I've said that in front of many team members at meetings. Um, I'm a huge Green Day fan in general, but I love the spirit of that quote. It comes back to a kind of rebellious question authority, go for it attitude for me, and don't be a follower, be a leader. Um, I tell the teams all the time, we're not interested in hiring and training sheep or robots. We want you to be, we want you to be an individual. We want you to try new things. I even go as far sometimes, you know, to, to say, if you're not going down in flames 10% of the time, you're not taking enough risks and trying hard enough. Um, over at the Windsor, one of our restaurants, we actually put question authority into the concrete. Um, and every once in a while, I have to remind the staff, you're not here just to take orders. You're here to contribute at a high level. And we realize you're going to make mistakes, but we don't want you to stop trying. In terms of doing things first, I just always like being innovative and being a leader and, and going for it. I've, I've never really been worried about it not working out. Uh, another thing my dad told me when I was young, if you're not going to die or go to jail, what the fuck are you worried about? <laughs> um, so you get a lot of chances to go to the plate in this country, in this you know environment. And as long as you're not treading on others, why don't you go for it? So I don't have much fear because I kind of channeled that, that quote from my dad. But as long as you're doing it and not treading on other people, I love when people go for it, even if it doesn't work out or it's not what I would have done. 
Yeah, certainly a lot easier to pull someone back than have to push them forward. Or as the uh, the saying goes, I think uh, rope is cheaper than jet fuel, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, I, yes. Hey, start big, start big and work back. Don't start scared and, and nervous and living in fear and try to do something great. You just got to go full out and then, and then, you know, then be realistic. But it's got to start with a big vision. Well, Craig, this has been uh, awesome, man. From uh, you know, from a what's next standpoint, what uh, what is next? Where, where where where's where's Upward Projects going next? You know, so we're, we we opened the store in Denver. We're looking at a couple other markets, Houston and Dallas. We love to continue to grow. We like adding new team members and doing interesting design and being innovative. But again, not not we as long as it doesn't compromise our core values and. We've had, you know, we, we've done a lot of growth, but it's been slow over the years and it's been quality and it's been responsible. So that's, that's our plan. I think there's something to spontaneity too. You know, we, when things come up, we, uh, we can react quickly. We don't have to, uh, take a long time to make decisions. We kind of like this lifestyle and we want to be, honestly, at the end of the day, we just want to be a great contributor to the community. Well, I think that is uh, as great a place to uh, to wrap for now. Uh, for those of you out there that want to learn more about Craig, about all of the family of brands that live underneath the Upward Projects uh, family, you go to upwardprojects.com. Craig DeMarco, what a pleasure it was to have you, man. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Uh, so happy to do it. Nice to chat with you. Have an awesome afternoon. Likewise, you too. Keep raising vibrations. Will do. Ciao. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed hearing our interview with Craig. If you're interested in a transcribed version of this show or want to listen to more episodes of the Built on Purpose podcast, please visit yscouts.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to recommend someone as a guest for the show, please drop me a line at brian at yscouts.com. I promise more great interviews are on the way. Thanks again for listening.